Bible. Glad you all are here this morning. You know, as we were singing Come Thou Fount, it occurred to me that some of you may have no idea what an Ebenezer is. So uh, if you know what an Ebenezer is, raise your hand. All right, a few of you. Okay. Ebenezer is a Hebrew word that means stone of help. Okay. And it comes from uh, 1 Samuel chapter 7, I believe it's verse 12, where Samuel uh, raises a pillar made of rocks uh, and puts it in this particular place. And he says, thus far, the Lord has helped us. And he put this stone there and he called it Ebenezer. And it's the stone of help so that uh, whenever people would see it, they would know, hey, God helped us up to this point with the implication being God is going to help us as we go forward into the future. And you need to have some, some things in your life or some places in your life where you've driven a stake or, or made a rock pile, if you will, uh, and look back and remember that God has helped me. He helped me through this and he helped me through that and he's going to get me through this too because he's been faithful here and here and here and here and that's the idea of the song is that um is that right here is a day where you could say God has been with me all the way up to now and he's going to continue to be with me in the future amen all right uh you got to you got to understand what you're saying so that you um so that you can really authentically praise God um, always a blessing and a privilege to be with you and open God's Word with you. And as we begin our time this morning, I want to ask you, are you a destination person or a journey person? Uh, when you take a car trip, is getting there truly half the fun for you? Or is getting there something to endure until you arrive? Okay, let me clear it up for you. If you're confused or curious... If you're a destination person, here's what you are like. You get everybody in the house up at O'Dark 30 to get on the road because there is no traffic then and you want to get as far as possible down the road today as you can. You don't want to stop for food or gasoline or someone else's bladder. <laughs> if you have to stop for one of these reasons, you time the stop so that you know how much time you've wasted in stopping. If you're a destination person, you also know exactly how long you can continue to drive after the gasoline light comes on. And you have never in your life ever willingly pulled over to read a single historical marker or take pictures at a historic or scenic overlook. Now, if, on the other hand, you are a journey person, here are some things that might be true for you. You start the trip at a reasonable hour after everyone is awake and has had breakfast. Because, after all, I'm on vacation. You want to stop at every historical marker, scenic village, and quaint, uh, a quaint village and scenic overlook or roadside stand because, well, who knows when we'll be through here again. We might miss something. And you like to eat at a restaurant that has a waiter and not an intercom. <laughs> and when you drive, none of the dashboard lights ever come on. And you are probably married to a destination person and drive him or her up the wall. 
<laughs> All right. Amen. All right. Let's pray. Uh, no, uh, seriously, we are uh, journeying with the Israelites toward the promised land. And God is taking them through the desert and he is revealing himself to them. And we are with them at Sinai. And here at the end of the uh, of, of the toward the latter half of the book where we are, chapter 23, God is telling them, you're still on the way to the promised land. And so if you're a destination person, take heart, you're going to get there. And if you're a journey person, please understand, it's going to be a long road, and it's going to be filled with a lot of challenges before you're finally able to possess the land and dwell in peace. But I'm going to be with you along the way. And so, uh, whether you're a destination person or a journey person, I want you to invite. You, you know, I want to invite you to uh, to pursue the destination with us here this morning, and to go on the journey uh, toward uh, toward the promised land from Sinai uh, here in chapter 23 of the book of Exodus. So, as you uh, as you make your way there, let's uh, let's bow and pray and ask the Lord to lead us here through His Word. And God, our Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you have given us your word by your Holy Spirit's power that you have carried along through his enablement uh, men who wrote your word and who ensured and preserved and protected your word that we might be able to know that it is trustworthy and that when your word speaks, you speak and you speak to us clearly. And Father, we do pray that as we study your word, that we would come not with a desire simply to be a smarter sinner, but to be a transformed saint who obeys and follows you with all of our heart and mind and soul and strength. And Father, we pray that your spirit would illumine your word to us, that we might grow up into maturity in Christ thereby. And we pray in Jesus' name and by your spirit's power. Amen. Well, the Israelites are soon going to end their time at Sinai. And this section that we are looking at, uh, at the end of chapter 23, is the tail end of what is called in Exodus the Book of the Covenant. And the Book of the Covenant details all of the responsibilities and all of the expectations that God has for them uh, as His covenant people. He has already saved them, but now having saved them, there are some requirements and responsibilities. They are not, obey, not to obey the law in order to be saved, but since they are saved, they're to obey God. And so God has detailed all of these rights and responsibilities that they have. And the, the way the book of the covenant is written follows an ancient a covenant treaty between a, a great king and a vassal people. And so that they understand that God is the great king and that they are his people that he rules over as king. He's written it in a way that is culturally appropriate and that they understand. And at the end of every ancient treaty, what they would do is they would call as witnesses uh, uh, the gods of the various uh, people. So if you were a, a, a emperor and then you had this other people and they worshiped different gods, well then you would invoke your gods and he would invoke his. And, and you would call them as witnesses and you would call heaven and earth as witnesses and so forth. 
uh, to this covenant that you made, and then following that, there was a covenant meal that you ate. Well, next week, we'll see the covenant meal that the elders of the people of Israel eat on Mount Sinai in the presence of God, which is a fascinating section. You'll want to be here for next week to see that. Um, But this week, we're also looking at a pretty fascinating section where God says he is going to send a witness to be along with them to ensure that they carry out the terms of the covenant. So if you've got your Bible open, I want want to show you this. Uh, Chapter 23, beginning verse 20 there of Exodus. Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I blot them out, you shall not bow down to their gods nor serve them, nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces." You shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water, and I will take sickness away from among you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. I will send my terror before you and will throw into confusion all the people against whom you have come. And I will make all of your enemies turn their backs to you. And I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the the Hivites, the Canaanites, and the Hittites from before you. I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little, I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and possessed the land. And I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the Euphrates, for I will give you the inhabitants of the, I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand, and you shall drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land lest they make you sin against me, for you, if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. Now, if you look at the first three verses of this uh, section here, you, you read about God's angel. And God's angel is the witness, if you will, that God is sending on the trip. And he is saying, I'm going to send my angel to be a witness between my covenant and you. And this angel... Uh, has a variety of functions. Uh, he will be God's witness, but he will also be their guide, and he will protect them. He's going to lead them and guard them and guide them, and he's going to enforce God's discipline if they violate God's covenant. And he will be the source of Israel's military victories. As they go into the land, uh, it's occupied by pagan Canaanites, and the angel is going to provide the victories on behalf of the people of Israel. But if you look closely at how this angel is described, you'll see some interesting things about him. If you look at verse 21 here in the text, uh, you see that God's name is, quote, in him, or it's in this angel. And God's name, remember, is more than just a name. It's connected with his character and his presence. And second, the angel is holy and has authority connected to the forgiveness or lack of forgiveness of sin. 
Now that's interesting. Because according to the scriptures, only God can forgive or not forgive sin. But here we're told that the angel has power connected to the forgiveness of sin. And uh, in verse 22, Israel is told that obeying the voice of this angel is equivalent to obeying the voice of God. And to rebel against the angel is to rebel against God. Now that's interesting. And the combination of these three things together has led a lot of Christian commentators, including this one, to the conclusion that this is not just an ordinary angel. That this is the figure described in your Old Testament who appears several times as the angel of Yahweh. And the angel of Yahweh is usually understood by uh, Christian readers of the Bible to be a, an, an appearance of the pre-incarnate, in other words, prior to, uh, to the Son of God becoming incarnate in Jesus, he already existed and eternally existed, in fact, as the Son of God. And so the second person of the Trinity is becoming visible. He has a, he has a theanthropic appearance, if you will, um, where he appears as a figure that it can be seen. And he is called the angel of the Lord. And uh, you, you see him with several people. You see him with Hagar in the book of Genesis when she flee, has to flee from Sarah. Uh, the angel of the Lord meets her. He appears to Abraham in his tent. A- Abraham has, uh, is, has uh, dinner for um, for two angels and the angel of the Lord. And the two angels go off to Sodom and Gomorrah to rescue Lot, and the angel of the Lord departs. Uh, He appears to Moses at the burning bush. He appears to Balaam on the road as he's headed off to try to curse Israel. The angel of the Lord appears uh, before Balaam as he's riding his donkey and stands there with a sword and forces the donkey into smaller and smaller and smaller places till finally the donkey lays down and Balaam begins to beat the donkey, and the donkey looks back at him and says, why are you beating me? Right? It's kind of a weird passage, but it's really funny, because somehow the, the donkey, who is a dumb animal, can see what the prophet of God could not, which was the presence of God right in front of him. And the angel then says to Balaam, now you go and you say what I tell you to say, not what you want to say. And Balaam says, Okay. I'll be obedient. Uh, He appears to Gideon at the wine press. He appears to Samson's parents. Uh, And I think that's who God is speaking of here. The word angel there is the word malak. And it uh, means messenger. So it doesn't necessarily have to mean a winged figure like you you think of as an angel. But it it could be just simply, I'm sending my messenger. And the messenger he is sending is the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, uh, who is appearing as the angel of the Lord. Um, And I could be wrong, uh, but even if I am, don't miss the point of the passage, which is that obedience to God's word, however it is revealed, that obedience to God's word yields blessing, while disobedience yields discipline. Following the leader that God sends is ultimately going to lead them to being 
uh, in the land with God as an ally himself against their enemies. Um, And God promises, I will be on your side if you obey. If you obey. And God's love for his people is not conditional, but his blessing is. Let me say that again. God's love is not conditional. He chooses Israel not because they were the, the, the best and the brightest and the most wonderful. In fact, God says, and I believe it's Deuteronomy, it was because you were the least and the most insignificant of all people of the earth that I picked you. <laughs> and his love for them is not conditional. But his blessing on his people is conditional on their obedience. By the way, that is still true. That God's love for you is not conditional, but his blessing on your life is conditioned on your obedience to his word. And that's not to say that we don't live in the era of grace. We do. But nevertheless, God's blessings follow your obedience. Now, look at verse 23 and 24 with me here. Let's move on a little bit further. Uh, the land of Canaan was filled with all kinds of tribes. You can read about them, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and usually people throw in the Mosquito Bites, right? They've got all kinds of different tribes, and they're, they're, they're from different places. And, you know, the Jebusites are, are the, the tribe that originally inhabited what became the city of Jerusalem. It's called Jabus before that. Uh, they're, they're all these different little people groups, but they are all... Some nasty, nasty people. Uh, In fact, if you want to read some of the reasons that God tells Israel to wipe them out, read Leviticus chapter 17. And what you will see is that these pagan people were engaged in a variety of unbelievably wicked worship, including child sacrifice. Uh, What they would do is... They would build these idols. One of the ways they would worship, they had these idols that had arms like this. They were made out of brass. And they had a hole in the middle, in in the abdomen. And um, And then they would build a fire on the inside of that idol. And you would take your infant child, try to imagine this, and you would roll them down the red hot arms of that idol into the belly of the beast. And in the meantime, they would beat drums to drown out the screaming of the children, and people would watch this and engage in sexual immorality in front of the idol. Now, I don't know what kind of a weird pervert you have to be to find that exciting, but that is what Canaanite worship looked like. It was disgusting. It was immoral. It was an abomination before God. And so God said, when you get into the land, you eliminate all of those people. You eliminate every last one of those people, and you don't leave any here. Because if you leave any there, what will happen is they will become a snare to you, and you will be influenced by their worship rather than you influencing them toward yours. And you're to get rid of them. And God said, you're not to leave even a hint of their kind of worship. You're not to adopt even a hint of their kind of worship 
into your worship whatsoever. You're to break down every one of their altars. You're to tear down every one of their pillars, uh, which they had graphic pillars that they would carve that were immoral, that were connected with this worship. And he said, you tear all that stuff down. I don't want any sign of their of Canaanite worship left in the land. And the reason God gives them that command is this. Imagine this. You've been living for 40 years in a tent. Now, they haven't been told they're going to live there for 40 years yet. That happens in numbers, which we won't get to for a while. But they've been living, by the time they get to the land, in tents for 40 years. Now, I don't know about you. I don't mind a little wilderness camping from time to time. You know, you get out, sleep under the stars, watch the loons fly, etc., up in the north woods, canoe around a little bit. That's fun, right? For about 10 days. And then I want a shower and a real bed and food I'm not having to, you know, cook over a fire. And I want to be in the company of somebody who smells better than the other men that I'm with, <laughs> right? Uh, and, you know, a little bit of that is fun, and it's a good time. But 40 years' worth is a little much for me. Uh, You can have my share of it if you're into it. But in any case, they're wandering around in the desert for 40 years. And then they they cross into the land, and when they get there, what they find is vineyards and orchards and fields and houses made out of stone. And God says, I'm going to give you all of this if you will follow and obey me, right? But here's where the temptation comes. They look around at all this stuff, and they go, you know, I'm kind of slow at math, but here's the deal. We've been following the Lord for 40 years, and we've been living in a tent and eating manna we've been picking up off the ground for 40 years. And now we came into the land, and these people that worship these gods over here have stone houses and orchards, and vineyards, and olive groves, and fields. They're living La Dolce Vita over here while I've been living in a tent. Maybe what I need to do is get myself some new gods. Because the Canaanite gods seem to be blessing and prospering in a greater way than the ones I've been following. And that's the temptation. And God says you are to get rid of all of the forms of Canaanite worship that you not be tempted to engage into it. And that temptation is real. And so God calls his people to single-minded devotion to him. And within their borders, there were to be no functional pagan worship centers, only ruins. So that they could remember to worship the Lord and him alone and not be tempted by pagan worship. And you know what? The same temptation is still around, isn't it? You look at, you watch TV, or you look around at unbelieving people in our culture here today, and you know what? Sometimes to be an unbeliever, to be a non-Christian, is to do pretty well. Some of them do very well financially. Amen? They have nicer cars than everybody in our church. 
In fact, some of them, if you took the assessed value of all of our vehicles, added it together. They have nicer cars than we do with just one of theirs. Right? And they have bigger houses, and they live at the beach and on private islands. And sometimes people look at that and they go, well, I don't know, man. I mean, following Jesus is good and all that. My parents have been, you know, nice people because they follow Jesus. But, you know, I mean, gosh. It seems like if you're a non-Christian and make yourself as God that you get to live a little nicer life. That temptation is still real. And God calls people to single-minded devotion to him and to tear down out of your life every vestige of your former pagan existence. Amen? To leave no scraps or little outposts behind. And a lot of times people do that. They, you know, they, there's an old little booklet called My Heart, Christ's Home. Robert Boyd Munger, I think, wrote it. A little booklet. It's good. You can read it. Um, but anyway, he talks about this closet that he has in his house. And the idea is, is it's a little parable and about Jesus moving into this guy's house. And, and he's, a, he's willing to let Jesus into everywhere else in the house except for this one little closet where he's got some dark and nasty stuff he'd rather Jesus not see. And some of us are like that guy in the story. And we want to maintain, we want a clean house. We don't want to be totally living in sin. But, you know, we want our little outposts that we maintain. You know, our one little pagan high place that we go and worship. Someone other than the Lord. Or something other than the Lord. And God says to his people, no, you're to tear it all down. Rip it all out. And you're to worship me and me alone. Amen? Now, I want to show you some blessings that follow obedience. If you look at the last section here, 25 to 33, what you see is that God makes it clear how the Israelites are going to receive his blessing. And he actually names some specific blessings. According to 25 and 26, he's going to bless their bread and their water and their bodies so they don't get sick. He's going to bless their wombs so that the women are not infertile and don't miscarry, and that all the people will live to old age. He says, if you obey me, all these things will happen. He says, I'll put your enemies to flight, and I'll give you possession of the promised land from the Mediterranean to the Red Sea and from the southern desert to the Euphrates River. I'll give you the whole chunk that I promised to Abraham to give to him, and I'm going to give you the entire thing. But there are also, I think, as you look at this passage and how it relates to us today, some things that God is teaching us and some things that God was teaching them uh, that he wants us to understand in the here and right now. And the number one thing is that God blesses obedience. God blesses obedience. You shall serve the Lord your God. That is the repeated refrain. Look at the text with me, verse 21. Okay, look at the text here. Pay careful attention and obey his voice. Do not rebel. 
But if you obey, verse 22, and do all that I say, verse 25, you shall serve the Lord your God over and over and over. We're told, obey God. And God's blessings come through obedience. It was true for Israel. It's still true today. And under the new covenant, we are not promised all of the same blessings. First of all, we're not a nation. We don't have a land that we are promised. Uh, we are not promised that if you become a Christian that you will never have a miscarriage and that no one will ever be infertile. You're not promised that if you become a Christian, no one will die at a young age. We're not promised those kinds of things. And we don't have physical enemies that we fight against. But it is still true, though we do not follow an earthly leader like they did, that in following a suffering and crucified Messiah, that though we suffer in this life, we still have blessings, and we still receive them in response to obedience. God's blessings are given to us in eternity, but they're also given to us in the here and now. There are still lasting joys to be had in this life, and God promises to give them to us if we will obey him. Let me give you just one example, all right? I am a deeply flawed husband and father. In fact, far more than you know. I hope that is not shocking, all right? But I'll just go on record in case anyone is confused, okay? Nevertheless, nevertheless, as I have obeyed God, He has blessed my marriage and He has blessed my parenting. Amen? And he has given me some incredible, lasting joys as it relates to my home. As I have obeyed God, he has blessed my ministry. He has blessed my finances. He has blessed every aspect of my life as I have obeyed him. And he still does that as you look to and follow and obey him. Amen? God blesses obedience. And most of you, if you if you're, are obedient to the Lord, you know exactly what I'm talking about. That He blesses you as you obey. Second thing I want you to see in this text here is that God wins the victory. God wins the victory. Uh, look at how many times God speaks of His work in giving the land to Israel. You can, you can see Him here. Verse 21, I will send an angel to bring you to the place. Verse 22, I'll be an enemy to your enemies, an adversary to your adversaries. Verse 23, when my angel goes before you and brings you, and I blot them out. Verse 27, I will send my terror before you, and I will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come, and I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. Verse 28, I will send the hornet. Verse 29, I will not drive them out from before you in one year. Verse 30, I will drive them out. Verse 31, I will set your border. I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand. Over and over and over and over, God is the subject and says, I am going to win the victory for you. You do not have to worry about this happening. And what we see is that it's not that Israel did not have to do anything. In fact, it's quite the contrary. They had to pray, and they had to seek the Lord, and they had to train, and they had to fight. 
And yet, God says consistently, the victory belongs to me. I'm the one who goes before you. I'm the one who gives victory. And according to the scriptures, we are not in the same kind of battle as the ancient Israelites. We're not looking for, you know, left Hivites to, you know, put the sword to. That's not what our, our job is. In fact, according to Ephesians 6.12, uh, Paul says, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Our battle is not physical, it's spiritual, but that doesn't mean it's not real. And it also doesn't mean that we get to be passive observers. We're called to pray and to believe and to know God's word, and to serve with our spiritual gifts, and to share the gospel with those who are still living in slavery to darkness and sin and death and headed for hell. Amen? We're called to do all of those things. But the main thing that we are called to do, even in Ephesians 6, is to rely on and trust and wait for the Lord's deliverance even as we obey. Amen? This is what... Ephesians 6.10 says, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. He empowers and He enables and He fights for us. And when you share the gospel with somebody, as an example, which I would encourage you to do, I would challenge you to do, I dare you to share the gospel with somebody. I'll do it if you'll do it. I triple dog dare you. Now you've got to do it. No backing out. All right? Uh, if you do that, do you know what will happen? The Lord Jesus himself, by his Holy Spirit, will go ahead of you and will prepare people who need to hear the message come out of your lips. And if they come to faith in Christ, do you know why that will happen? It will be because God used you to communicate his message to somebody he had decided to save. Because the battle is the Lord's. And you don't need to worry. You need to stay up nights going, oh, I wonder how we're going to get through this. <laughs> okay. Why? The Lord goes before you, and it's his battle and his victory, and he's already decided to use you, which is why he's told you to go and do this. Amen? All right. We need mostly to believe and to pray and to trust and obey, and then to watch as God delivers when we do. Amen? Number three, the victory happens little by little. Verse 29 and verse 30, God says, I will not drive them out in one year, little by little. I will drive them out before you. In Israel's case, this was for the very good reason that they were a small nation. And if everybody vanished, they could not defend the borders, and they could not keep control of the wild animals, and pretty soon, what had been vineyards and orchards and fields would just be grown up wild. And at this time in world history, there are still things like Asiatic leopards and brown bears and Asiatic lions and stuff that are running around. So you want to keep the wildlife out away from the farm. Amen? You don't want the wolf at the door, literally speaking. You do not want that. And so God says, I'm going to give you victory little by little, and eventually you will take the entire land. But in the meantime, you're going to have to trust me as it comes little by little. 
You know, we had a baptism last week. And by the way, this is still how God works. That he still gives victory little by little by little. So that we learn to trust him and rely on him and to follow him day after day after day after day. We had a baptism last week. And I just want to tell you that there are very good and great reasons why we do not hold people under until they quit bubbling. Okay. One of the reasons is, is that, first of all, that would be murder. But second, a, good, a second and very good reason is this. That that is not the way God works. When he saves us, he does not immediately take us to glory. Amen? What does he do? He leaves us here. And we learn to fight against our sin. And we learn to progressively take territory, as it were, in our own spiritual life. And to conquer over stuff that has beset us. Sometimes for a very long time. And all of a sudden, as we learn to trust God, we learn that His grace is sufficient day after day after day after day. Little by little by little, we grow up into the measure of the stature which belongs to Christ. Because the victory does not come all at once. Now, sometimes we wish for that, right? That we just go, you know, God, it would be great if when I was converted, if I was you know, fully glorified, like right then, boom, just bring me to glory, convert me, save me from sin and death, right now, all at once, one shot, justified, sanctified, glorified, same day, same instant, that would be awesome, right, and we think that, but God has a better idea, and his idea is, is that we learn more of his greatness and grace as we experience it over time than we would if we received it all in one shot, now, um, I want to just encourage you on that. Uh, I ran across a great line this week from a, a writer named Anthony Trollope. Now, Anthony wrote in the 19th century, so you may not know who he is, but he was a prolific novelist, wrote a lot of books, and at the same time was responsible for managing and revolutionizing the British Postal Service. And this is what he wrote. He said, A small daily task, if it is done daily, will beat the labors of a spasmodic Hercules. Okay, and I love that, that last little bit of it, the spasmodic Hercules. You know, it speaks to all of us who try to, you know, kind of really do something fantastic like all at once, Right? Gonna, I, you know, I haven't read my, read my Bible, you know, in two months, but I'm going to read 15 hours Tuesday, you know, that kind of a thing, right? And 15 minutes a day, every day, will be far better than 15 hours once a month. Amen? And you will do much more for your spiritual life, even on a little, small effort, than you will on great effort, widely spaced apart. <laughs> Same way with exercise, same way with spiritual discipline, same way with your spiritual life generally. A little effort every day beats the labor of a spasmodic Hercules, right? Even if you get a whole bunch done on that one day, uh, over time, you won't make as much progress as somebody who just stays after it day after day after day. Last thing, uh, there is no compromise with evil. There is no compromise 
with evil. God tells them repeatedly over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. Till I'm sure he is sick of telling them. Do not leave even one pagan altar standing. Even one single shred, speck, remnant, scrap of Canaanite worship. Not one Canaanite person are you to make a treaty with. Why are they not to make a treaty with them? Because to, to make a treaty with another people is to invoke their gods. And you're not to even recognize the existence of other gods. And you're not to make treaties with these other people. There is no compromise. There is no treaty. There is no accommodation to evil or allowing it to persist. Why? Because over time, accommodating evil grows into participating in evil. If the Canaanites and their idolatrous worship were not driven out and destroyed, then they would become, and God said this is what would happen, and it is what happened. They would become a snare to Israel, capturing them and turning them away from God. And that is precisely what happened. They got used to the Canaanites, and then they started worshiping like them and with them. And God got brought judgment on the nation of Israel over and over and over and over again until finally they were exiled from the land. And it wasn't until a few of them came back that idolatry was finally eliminated from the land. There can be no compromise with evil. And I know you and I are not too tempted usually by explicit idolatry. You know, the idea of, you know, getting yourself a little statue, you know, a little niche in your wall, you know, stick this little statue in that you can get dressed and offer sacrifices to every day, probably doesn't have a lot of appeal for you. Because that seems just dumb to most Westerners. We look at that and go, no, that looks stupid, okay? Uh, But we live right now among a people who are just as immoral and just as wicked as the ancient Canaanites. In fact, we might, I don't know if it were a competition, we might as a nation stand them in the shade. Because we murder on an annual basis far more children than the Canaanites ever thought of. Look up the statistics on Planned Parenthood if you don't believe me. We murder kids by the millions. In the name of our God of sexual immorality. And we worship fertility deities of our own making just as they did. Only we call them something different. We call them alternative lifestyles or we call them uh, the way that people live now. Or we call it living together or we call it any number of other things. But what we're doing is we're bowing down to the pagan idols of our culture and our country and our people. And we have compromised, in many cases, with evil and immorality. And God says there's no compromise. Amen?
There's no compromise. And you don't, you don't let a gap form between what God says and, what you, and the way that you live. Because if you do, what happens is this. If you're a dime's width today, you're going to be a nickel's width tomorrow. And then a quarter's width. And then pretty soon you're a long way away from God. And you're off in a far country. And you don't know how to get home. Amen? And that, I've seen that happen time after time after time after time with people who decide to allow a little evil in their life to flourish and remain unconquered. Some little section of, of their life that they would just as soon maintain a shrine in. And then it takes their life. It takes over. Amen? No compromise. We're going to slay all of our sin, put it all to death, that we might glorify God with our whole life. Amen? Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it speaks to us so clearly. Even as it was written to ancient people, it is written to your people, and therefore it is written for us that we might learn and grow and understand things about you that we need to know and obey. And Father, we thank you for how much you love us. We thank you for your great grace to us in saving us and giving us the Spirit who enables us to have even better obedience than the people of Israel, that the law might transform us not just on the outside but on the inside, that we would be transformed people who leave no shrine or altar from our former life still standing but by your holy spirit's power we tear them all down knowing that you bless obedience and discipline disobedience because you are a good god and you love us and father we pray we would choose the path of blessing and of holiness in jesus name amen